So we're in a fall series of messages here at our church exploring what grace means to us, not as a theological concept, not just as opposed to the family as we did last spring, but now what grace means to us as a church body, a group of people who call themselves followers of Jesus and now stand committed to one another. And last week we led off talking about a critical spirit, the temptation you and I have to judge each other way too harshly, and how grasping God's grace can counteract this all too often tendency we have to judge. And you might remember that I told you when we were leading off last week with this subject that this idea of judging was going to be the most difficult thing for us to do in this whole series, that we were leading off with the most difficult subject, this idea of a critical spirit, uh, last week as we started this series. And the reason that's important for me to remind you of that this morning is because if last week was the most difficult, then i got to tell you this week is clearly going to be the most important. It's true. The topic that we're going to be exploring this morning, and some of you have already noticed it in our bulletin, in this second installment on grace in the church, without a doubt is the most important topic of grace when it comes to followers of Jesus who are now called to treat each other, and even those outside the fold, in a particular way. And so listen now, Brian Zand, a pastor and author of the book Unconditional, The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness, says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, the primary experience and central emphasis of Christianity revolves around the theme of forgiveness. Not forgiveness as merely an end in itself or a legal means of escaping punishment, but forgiveness as reconciliation and total restoration. Christianity presents itself, Christianity presents forgiveness as the restoration of the troubled relationship between God and humanity. Forgiveness is also that which alone has the capacity to achieve peace and reconciliation within human relationships, whether personal or global. And then notice he says, I love this, Christ followers are called to radical forgiveness, unreasonable forgiveness, reckless forgiveness, endless forgiveness, seemingly impossible forgiveness. If Christianity is about anything, he says, it is about forgiveness. And folks, I think he's right. Over and over again, the Bible, like a scratch CD that stuck on itself, especially the New Testament, talks about this theme of forgiveness. Many, if not most, of Jesus' stories had to do with the theme of forgiveness. The epistles all over the place are talking about forgiveness. The fact that you and I have been forgiven by God of our great sin and now have been saved, redeemed by Him, and that now we're supposed to pass that on to those around us. And so I want to read about what Jesus had to say on this topic. And if you brought a Bible with you today, and I will forgive you if you didn't, but if you did bring a Bible with you today, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. And this is one of Jesus' many stories on forgiveness. And we're going to park in front of this story today. We're going to exegete it uh, as deeply and fully as time will allow. And I think you're going to find that this story, this parable of Jesus, which is not one of his most well-known stories, is going to help us tremendously in unpacking, understanding, and applying this all-important topic of grace, that of forgiveness. So Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, certainly we'll have the Scripture here up on the screen. Let's read together. Follow along as I read. 
It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant came, and when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So three things. I want you to notice in this parable three things that if you and I can grab on to today, we're going to start to make headway with this thing called forgiveness. And the first thing that I want you to notice here is going to kind of surprise some of you because you didn't notice it right now, at first in this parable, but it's here and it's simply this, and that is that it is natural in a world designed around justice to not forgive. I think this is the first thing Jesus is teaching us in this parable, that it's natural in a world designed around justice to not forgive. And so track this. Jesus is telling them a story about forgiveness, both its need as well as how to do it. We'll get to that in a minute. But notice that before Jesus even gets to the main point of the story, he makes clear how most people think and function in this world. Look again at verses 23 to 25. It says that there was a king who had servants. This is a good translation of that word because what it's getting at in that culture is that this king had a slate of people who would do business for him. They would collect taxes. They would buy and sell goods. They would transact business deals. They worked directly for the king, and they would bring all the gross and net proceeds from their transactions to the king, and in so doing, they would settle accounts with him. They would compare receipts versus expenditures and then give the balance to the king. And then the king would dole out a particular standard of living to each of his servants as he saw fit. And quite frankly, this was not too bad of a living in first century Palestine, especially if you did well for the king. And though we don't know many details here, because it's a short story Jesus was telling us, we know that in this particular story here, there was one particular servant who had racked up an infinite amount of debt to the king. That's really important that you latch on to that part of the story. It was an infinite amount of debt. It says there in verse 24 that this servant owed 10,000 talents. 
Do you see that there? 10,000 talents. And some of you are saying, what's a talent? What you need to know is that a talent in biblical times was not an actual coin or a bill like the denarius, which we're going to look at in just a minute, that's also mentioned in this story. No, a talent back then was a weight or a measure. And to the best of our knowledge, it was the equivalent to 70 to 75 pounds in our standard system. One talent was 70 to 75 pounds, and it was usually used to weigh things like gold or silver. So in the Old Testament, Solomon used talents for the measurement of gold. And so if you're doing the math, in our story here, 10,000 talents of gold would be 750,000 pounds of gold, 10,000 times 75. And at today's value, I did this on Friday as I was finishing my message, at today's value of roughly $1,875 per ounce, this would equal $22.5 billion that the man owed the king. 10,000 talents of gold equals $22.5 billion of gold today. This is what the servant owed the king. It was an astronomical amount of money. Outrageous to Jesus' hearers back then and outrageous to our ears today. That's exactly Jesus' point here. It was a debt so huge that the guy could never repay it. That's Jesus' point. And notice further, before we put this together, that this man had to be brought to Jesus. Some of you picked up on that as well. It says in verse 24 that he didn't come willingly. He didn't fess up to his embezzlement. He didn't come clean and try to make amends. He was found out and he was brought to the king. And when he was, just like it happens in our culture and world today, when things like Enron collapses or when a child is harmed or when a wayward celebrity breaks parole, justice is served. The Old Testament law says in Exodus chapter 22 that if a person stole from another person and couldn't pay the debt, then he or she would be, and I quote, sold for his theft. And though obviously the king wouldn't get anywhere near $22.5 billion for this man and his family, justice demanded that this guy be sold. And so it says there in verse 25 that the man and his family are to be sold and the proceeds go toward the debt. Please don't miss this, folks. It's very important that you understand this. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Old Testament justice. And within the system back then, and I'm going to argue even within our system today, it's fair and it's right. And that's what Jesus is getting at here initially in the story. It's the way that our natural world functions, a way built upon right and wrong. And those we're going to see in a minute, God's going to infuse an element of grace here that's going to change everything for his followers. This still doesn't negate the fact that you and I live in a world in which written into a good portion of its hard drive is this call for justice. I mean, to be sure, when you hear of greedy, self-consumed, high-level executives taking down a company like Enron a few years back and sending thousands to the unemployment line, or when Bernie Madoff bilks thousands of people of their investments, do you immediately think of forgiveness or justice? Answer that to yourself. Yeah, justice. Most of us do. When you watch those MSNBC specials, To Catch a Predator, where these totally messed up grown men try to lure a child with the intent of sexually abusing them. Do we immediately think of forgiveness or justice? We think of justice. 
But when you observe a fellow employee at work who's just kind of kissing up to the boss and doing bad and dishonest things in order to get in with the boss and then snubs his or her nose at you in the process, do you immediately think of forgiveness or justice? I think most of us think of justice. Even personalized with your family. When your kid rebels against you and digging his or her heels in says, I'm not going to listen to you no matter what. Do you initially think of forgiveness or justice? I think most of us know the answers to these questions. We usually think of justice. And I want us to wrestle this morning with why. Is it because we're not a forgiving bunch of people? No. It's because we realize that written into the fabric of this, thrown in the fabric of this universe, is this idea of justice. We talked about this last week. God is surely about justice. And when you think about it, it's justice that keeps society civil and it keeps it relatively sane. I mean, think about it, folks. Without justice, I'm telling you, people would be whizzing through stop signs all the time. Amen? I mean, if we could get away with it, and they said, ah, go through 10 stop signs a year and you'll never get a ticket, you guys will go through 10 stop signs the first day. I mean, the reality is without justice, without some form of rule and penal sanction, and society would be crazy. If people could go 85 and a 35, they would. More, more to the point, if some people could steal and have no consequences for it, they probably would. Even in personal relationships, justice is a good thing. I know many people are very faithful to their families because they realize the consequences for not doing so would be catastrophic. That's justice. We realize that for every action we do, there's a reaction. We realize for every choice that we make, there's going to be some sort of consequence for it. That's justice. And at the end of the day, it's a good thing that we have justice and God himself invented it and both society and relationships function well under it. And that's one of the first things we need to notice in this parable. What the king was doing initially was right. It's just that in the end, in the last analysis, God comes along, now get this, and he says that the highest and most altruistic character trait is not that of being fair-minded or being a just man or woman, no. God comes along and says, though justice should and will always exist in a fallen world, the highest and most altruistic character trait of a follower of Christ should be that of love, and specifically love that knows how to pass on grace in the form of forgiveness. That's what we need to see in this parable. That there are many times in which God says love in the form of forgiveness is designed to trump justice. That's the whole scandal and point of Jesus' initial part of the story here. The fact that this man swindled lots of money, got caught, and then was headed right toward the punishment that he deserved, that it's natural in a world designed around justice to not forgive, but we know where this is headed. And that is that the king is going to forgive this terrible sin anyways, and by so doing, don't miss this, he throws grace into the face of justice. That's what he does in this story. Jesus scandalizes justice. That's why the Pharisees didn't like him. They were all into justice. They were all into people getting what is due them. 
And the fact that in Jesus' story, I mean story after story after story, Jesus throws grace into the face of justice really bothered them. It's just that those who were ready to follow him and live by kingdom values saw this as music to their ears. They saw this as food to their spiritual bellies. And so Jesus' point is obviously in this story, let's not miss this, that this is what God does for you and me when it comes to our sin against him and his forgiveness on a cross for us. I mean, that's the main point of this story. We're going to apply it in a second here to how you and I treat each other, but, but let's be contextually honest. The, the point of Jesus originally telling this parable was to communicate the gospel to you and me. Are you with me on that? So give me a click here. Let's make sure we all understand. Click. Perfect. Just to make sure we all understand exactly what's going on in this story here and who each player is representing. Almost every commentator, Bible expert out there today would say what's up on the screen here, that the king there equals God. That the king here in Jesus' fictitious story represents God. The servant there represents us, all of humanity, serving God. And the 10,000 talents, this is rich, I love this, represents our sin. And the reason that Jesus made it such an astronomically outrageous number, a debt that could never be paid back, it's because our sin is so astronomically offensive to God and we are so weak in our spirits, even though you're so good at your job or good at whatever you do, you could never do something about your sin problem before God. You could never pay back God what you owe Him due to what your sin has done to offend Him. The fact that the servant had to be brought to God shows that we hide, or the king shows that we hide and God is the one who finds the fact that the servant was going to be sold into slavery is Romans chapter 6. The fact that we've been sold into Romans 5 and 6, that we've been sold into slavery ourselves by our sin. And God, who could have simply let justice reign with all of this, a natural thing to do in his economy of right and wrong, in this parable chooses not to do this. He chooses to provide grace and forgiveness to us instead, giving us a new lease on spiritual life this side of heaven and certainly in the next. It's natural in a world designed around justice to not forgive. But God comes along, please see this, and forgives anyway. That's Jesus' whole point. And then for those of us who take him up on his offer of forgiveness, now here's where we're going today, he says, now I expect you to do the same for those around you. When you're the servant who has been released, as we're going to see in a second here, of this debt that you owed me, and you're now free. Galatians 5.1 is for freedom that Christ sets us free. When you're that servant, and then you encounter another servant who owes you, as we're going to see in a second here, a much smaller debt comparatively, what's your response to be? To forgive. To forgive. Because he has forgiven you. And so once we've established this, the question becomes, well... Okay, Jamie, I get that. We're to forgive. But what does forgiveness look like? Now, I know some of you aren't asking that question today because you dare not want to ask that question. But let's wrestle with that. What does forgiveness look like? I mean, how do we know when we're actually forgiving or not? I mean, to be sure, lots of people say they forgive. You and I all experience that. But we also know that talk is cheap. And so how do we know when somebody is really and truly forgiving another person's, person just versus going through the motions or mouthing the right words. 
Believe it or not, Jesus goes on to share this with us in this story. And it's found in verses 26 and 27. And we might summarize what Jesus is getting at by saying it this way. It's point two on your outline. Look up here on the screen. This is going to blow you away. And that is that the markers of forgiveness are letting go of the wrong committed. Some of you know that because you've been around the church block a thousand times. The markers of forgiveness are letting go of a wrong committed combined with positive feelings of compassion and mercy. And you're saying, whoa, I don't know if I like that one, but it's true. The markers of forgiveness are letting go of a wrong committed combined with positive feelings of compassion and mercy. Now let's unpack this before you dismiss this out of hand. Notice with me how Jesus communicates this to us as he continues his story in verses 26 and 27. I like how the New American Standard Bible translates this, so I've chosen to put that particular passage up here on the screen. Look at what it says. It says, The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave, now here it is, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Whoa. So we see the servant falling down before the king and begging for patience, promising to repay the debt which we know is an empty promise, right, because of its size and enormity. There's no way he's going to pay this thing back. And in response to this act of submission and plea for patience, notice two key things that the text says that led to what Jesus labeled forgiveness. This is so key. First, it says that the king had compassion. Do you see that there in verse 27? He had compassion. In the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, this word literally means, we learned this last week, to have the bowels yearn. That's what it means, to have the bowels yearn. It's a word that denotes a physical and emotional stirring inside somebody so strong that your stomach actually does that roller coaster thing. And some of you have had compassion like that, where you felt it in your midsection. It's actually a physical feeling. It was the same feeling that Jesus had when he saw the multitudes. It was the same feeling he had when he healed the sick. It was the same feeling he attributed to the good Samaritan, as well as to the father who received back his son in the story of the prodigal son. It's compassion. And as you're hanging on to that, notice a second key ingredient to forgiveness that flows from this compassion, and that is that the king releases this man from his debt. I'm going to ask you only to grab onto two words in this entire parable. The word compassion and then the word released there. The king releases this man. That word released here in the original language means to free fully or to let die. It carries with it a picture that you have totally let go of something or killed something to the point that it has nothing to do with you anymore. Interestingly, it's the same word used in the New Testament to describe prisoners who have been released from prison. They're no longer in prison. They're out. They're no longer behind bars. They're free. You get the idea. For good or for bad, it's the same word used in the New Testament for divorce, releasing somebody from the marital covenant. And so don't miss this. Forgiveness at its core means to lay aside, to let alone, to not hold someone guilty or punished for the wrong that they committed against you. And so obviously a precursor to this is that you have to release them. And the point is obvious, folks. 
If we're reading this right, what it's saying is, is that when you truly forgive someone, and I mean really and truly forgive them in an authentic way that comes from the heart, it is most times marked by feelings of compassion and mercy, a tender and softened heart that allows you to release a person, free him or her from the debt that they owe you due to the wrong they committed against you. Please see this. It's compassion that releases. That's what forgiveness is. And so if you're tracking with this at all, in the end, I love this, forgiveness becomes an emotional, intellectual, and behavioral activity all wrapped up into one. It really does. Some of you have been taught over the years that, that, that forgiveness is simply a choice. It's simply an act of will, no matter how you think or no matter how you feel. I don't think that's completely fair. I really don't. I know why some Christian teachers have taught that. They've taught it so that you can convince yourself that you've forgiven somebody even though you still hate the person. They want to convince you that you can forgive somebody even though you still have terrible thoughts toward that person. I don't think that's accurate. I'm going to give you some freedom and help with this in a minute. But let's be honest about what forgiveness is. It's an emotional, intellectual, and willful activity. It involves your heart as you display mercy and compassion. It involves your mind as you choose to release the person and not hold their sin against them. And then your will as you actually do release them and act in a way that toward them that is commensurate now with your heart and mind. And because forgiveness is this way, here's the cool thing about it, it's almost impossible to fake or fabricate it. And all of you have had, for, uh, have had experiences with that, uh, where you've tried to fake forgiveness, and everybody, their brother, knows you really haven't forgiven. You know, the reason that this is so important, and it's obvious, is that because there's so many people today that say they forgive, and yet they, they then display emotions and feelings that connote anger and revenge and actions that want nothing to do with the person. I, I see it all the time as a pastor, and I, I don't want to laugh too much at it, but let's laugh a little bit at it because we're all so like this. Uh, somebody, I'll pick on Roger. I always pick on Roger. He's one of my, I love Roger. So Roger here says that, that he forgives his wife for something. And, and he and I are having a cup of coffee, and I'll say, well, how's it going with you and your wife now that you've forgiven her? And he'll say, it's going fine. I never want to see her again. <laughs> see, that's the way some of us approach forgiveness. You know, I forgive that person, but I, I, I just hope I never have to deal with them again in my life. I don't want to think about them. I want to feel toward them. And what you and I need to wrestle with today is, is that really forgiveness? I'm going to submit to you, that might be the start of forgiveness. Forgiveness at the end of the day is a process. And for some of us, it takes years, especially depending on the extent of the hurt, to go through the process. So don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that forgiveness is easy. We're going to get to that in a minute. And I'm certainly not saying that forgiveness is not a process. It is. There are still some people in my life who I'm still trying to forgive and work through the feelings associated with it and the thoughts that come with it and all of that. I think God gets this. So we're not dishonoring the fact that forgiveness is difficult and that it's a process. What we're simply noting is that you're not to the end of the process until it becomes a heart, mind, and will thing. Do we all get that? That you can't say you forgive somebody and then hate them and never want to see them again at the same time. That's not forgiveness. Again, I love how some people say it. They'll say, you know, I forgive, but I'll never forget. And though I get that, because again, some of us just have really good memories, and so it's good that you don't forget. I think sometimes what we mean by I'll forgive and I'll never forget 
is that I'll forgive and I'm going to continue to hold that against you and I'm never letting go of that. I think that's what some of us mean by forgive and not forget. And if that's what you mean by it, I'm here today to tell you, I don't think you've quite forgiven that person yet. And I have compassion on that. I have empathy on that. I get that. I think God understands that. I think he loves you and is kind and gentle to you in that. But he's not going to call a spade a spade until it's a spade. And you really haven't forgiven until compassion and releasing are part of the equation. You know, I've wrestled with this a ton over the years. I really have, because I used to teach when I first became a pastor. Uh, I used to try to free everybody up on this forgiveness thing. Noni, you would have loved it. I mean, I used to tell people all the time in my, my first church, you know, that you can forgive and not forget, and you can forgive and still really be angry, and you can forgive. I mean, I, re- I, I, I just, I, I, I took a very therapeutic approach toward forgiveness. And over the years, I don't, know, I'm, I don't think I'm getting hardened. I think I'm just getting more realistic. I, I don't think I helped people in the early days. I, I think I made forgiveness so easy. I, I think I made it so that people felt like they had really forgiven somebody else, and, and yet they really hadn't forgiven. They still were spiritually messed up, spiritually angry, spiritually distant from God. I'm not sure I helped them. And though I don't want to go so far as to say, I'm going to be really honest with you guys, that you absolutely cannot forgive if you still have residual feelings of hurt and anger. I'm not trying to say that today. What I am trying to say, however, is that what I believe Jesus is getting at here is that as a general truism, the pathway toward forgiveness and the markers along the way involve both a softened, tender heart of compassion that realizes how fallen both of you are, whoever you're dealing with, and you now have compassion toward them and their sin against you, as well as the eventual releasing them from the debt that they owe you for the wrong they committed against you. And all I know is that when I see it like that, that's real forgiveness. I was on the golf course the other day with a fellow pastor, and I can't share who or what the story is because it was obviously in confidence, but as we were golfing, he, he shared me a little bit of the history of his church. And uh, he has a long history with this particular church, and he's been through many ups and downs, as you do when you stay long enough at a church. And he was sharing with me that about a decade ago in his church, he went through a very difficult time with the leadership of the church. And during that difficult time, he felt very betrayed and backstabbed by certain leaders in the church. And I've heard stories like that a ton over the years. I mean, I, you know, it seems like every time I get with a pastor, they have some sort of journey or story how uh, well-meaning lay people have hurt them deeply uh, in, in their lives. And as this guy was sharing me this story, I, I, I kind of predicted where the end was going to go. The end was going to go to the fact of he eventually got strong in his leadership and asserted it and rallied people around him and got the bad people out and the good people in, and now they're doing better, which is many times the best case scenario I usually hear. But that wasn't the end of his story. He shared with me how over the years as he hung in there with these people, even the same people that hurt him, he was able to work through the issues to the point, and I get this, that some of the people that were the most hurtful to him were now in key leadership positions in his church. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm about ready to swing a club. I look and I go, how does that work? Like, how, how did you get to that point? Because I, I don't hear that very often. I mean, that, that one clobbers me a little bit. What, what happened there? And he said, well, we were, we were able to work through the issues, and I was able to forgive them, and they were able to forgive me, and now we lead together. And as I was driving home from my golf event with this friend, you know what thought hit me? Because I knew the sermon was coming up. I thought, that stuff cannot happen without compassion and releasing. It can't. 
I mean, I know plenty of pastors that say that they forgive what lay people did to them years ago, but what they mean by that is that they kick those lay people out there to another church and never have to deal with them anymore, and now they've forgiven them. And I said, they go, wait to heaven. Isn't that going to be interesting, right? And yet that's not what this guy was saying. He was saying that they stayed, see what going, they stayed in the same church. They worked through the messiness of the issues. It took years to process it, but they've come out the other side of the tunnel of chaos, releasing and showing compassion to the point that they can now lead together. And I sit there and go, whoa, a victory for the kingdom of God, because that's the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to have that kind of forgiveness of each other in which not only is God glorified and honored, but now the church works together again. And that's forgiveness, folks. And when you see it this way, when you realize that this is what God is after when it comes to forgiveness, the only question left for us to deal with is how. I mean, how in the world do you forgive someone with a compassionate heart and a releasing mentality that allows you to follow through in your actions toward them? Especially, let's be honest, when we're dealing with big hurts. Somebody cuts you off on the 101, yeah, you can forgive them pretty quick, right? Uh, wife doesn't make dinner like you wanted her to make, you can forgive them. Uh, Kim and I laugh about this one. There's many times where I'm coming home, she'll call me and say, I want a Snicker bar. And in the early days, I'd pick her up a Milky Way bar. You'd think I denied the resurrection of Jesus by buying her a Milky Way bar. I mean, it really made her mad. You know, and, and she'd be angry at me. I mean, for like an hour, it'd be like a tense moment in our household because I messed up on the Snicker bar. But, but you know what? Let's face it. She was able to get over that one fairly quickly in our lives. But, but there's other things that are a lot bigger than that. People that have been abused as children or people that have been abandoned and rejected by a spouse today. Or somebody who has betrayed a confidence in your life that you trusted deeply. Or a boss that hurt you. Or a teenager who has rebelled. I mean, there's lots of big hurts that our church deals with every day. So how do you forgive those? And here's the third thing I want to share with you. It comes right out of the text. And that is that the key to forgiving is to realize and experience how much you are forgiven. There it is. The key to forgiving, and I'm telling you this works, it is to realize, and, and here's the other key word, experience how much you are forgiven. So here's the principle behind this. Many people miss this. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to further forgiveness. So the way that Christians learn to forgive each other is by getting in touch and experiencing God's forgiveness of you because His forgiveness will lead to you being able to forgive others. And, and folks, it's powerful when you latch on to this. And this is precisely the point of Jesus' story as he wraps it up. You remember how it ends. The servant goes out after having been set free and released from this huge debt, and he stumbles on another servant who owes him some money as well. But this guy doesn't owe him $22.5 billion. You know how much this guy owes him? About $2,000. A hundred denarii. And today's dollars would be about $2,000. So you got the difference between $22.5 billion and $2,000 in Jesus' story here. And realizing that he now needs this money, the first servant doesn't just ask kindly for it. Notice in the text there, it says he starts to choke the guy. Well, he grabs around the neck, starts to choke him. But the servant can't pay. He's too broke. I guess there was a lot of greed in Palestine that year because they're all messing up. And so he falls on his knees and he begs the first servant for more time. Don't miss this. 
commentators point out, using the exact same bodily motions, using the exact same words, he begs for the exact same kind of forgiveness. And instead of remembering and realizing the debt that he had just been freed from, this full first servant develops a full payment, full punishment mindset and throws the other servant in prison until he can pay back his debt, which is going to take a long time. And so the other servants can't believe this. They tell the king, and look at how the story wraps up. Look at verses 32 to 35. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Pause there. Mercy begets mercy. Do you see that principle? Forgiveness leads to forgiveness. Read on, verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And so we're down to the short strokes here, folks. And don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying through the forgiveness that he came to bring, the fact that God has now offered us forgiveness of the huge debt of our sin. Sin so big that we could never pay it back on our own. But that Christ came to forgive you of your $22 billion sin against Him. That when you get in touch with that, when you experience that through salvation in Jesus Christ, and almost all of you are Christians here today, the Bible says you now have the opportunity, know the expectation, know the command, to love others with the same kind of love that you have received and now to forgive them in the same way that God has forgiven you. But the only way you're going to do this is if you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you and continue to experience his forgiveness of you on a daily basis. Why do you think 1 John 1.9 is such an important passage? 1 John 1.9 says this. It says if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason that verse is so important is because you and I need to wake up every day and throughout the day confess our sin before God, keeping our sin before us and Him so that we might experience on a regular day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis His continual forgiveness of us. It's not like if we fail to confess, he won't forgive us. I I don't think that's true because the blood of Christ has covered all of your sin. It's an experiential thing where you and I need to experience his forgiveness each moment of each day so that then when somebody else hurts us, we go, oh, oh, God just forgave me an hour ago for what I did. I can certainly forgive this person for what he did. I know that when we talk about things like this, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. Nobody realizes that more than me. In fact, I almost started the sermon today saying that I just want us all to know I'm a big hypocrite when it comes to this sermon. There's two sermons that I'm a hypocrite on in this whole series, and that's forgiveness and kindness. I'm really working on the kindness thing at least till after I'm done with it in about two weeks. And, and, and so I, I know that, that what I've talked about today is a lot easier said than done. But we want to wrap up today before we go to the communion table by sharing with you a story of a very real-life scenario, probably one of the most difficult ones somebody will ever face, and what God did through his balm of forgiveness. And I will let you know that the story you're about to see is true. It's a story of a woman who recently moved here with her husband and four children. They're now part of Scottsdale Bible Church. They're a wonderful addition to our church. And she had the courage to share her story with us 
about forgiveness. And it's raw and it's real. And I'm just amazed how God moves in people's lives. And it will show you what we've been talking about today. So this is Danielle's story. Look up here on the screen, and then I'll get back with us right afterward, and we'll go to the communion table. My name is Danielle Palomo, and when I was a teenager, I was just a baby Christian, um, young in my faith, and I started attending a local youth group in a town nearby mine. And after several months of attending this youth group, I found myself in an inappropriate relationship with my married youth pastor. And I somewhat confided in a friend, and my friend um, told her parents and they told the senior pastor, and consequently this youth pastor was fired from his job. And after that happened, it probably took about a week of the rumor mill going and all those different kind of things. And before long, the majority of the small church I was attending knew that I was the girl that got our youth pastor fired. So these, these people that I thought were my friends and my mentors, they began to despise me and blame me for what had happened. They completely turned their backs on me and kind of cast me off to the side where I was, I really felt like worthless and that I had no value. The people that were in that room with me, worshiping God with me, didn't like me and they didn't want me there. And But I kept going and I decided that I wasn't going to let these people take me away from God. I was going to sit there and I was going to worship Him and and so I just kept going. But it didn't change the fact that inside I was broken. Inside I was hurting. I had a destroyed little heart. And you know, I went off to college. I went to Bible college. And when I got there, I was totally broken. And I really was a mess. And every day after chapel, we'd have prayer time and uh, time to go down to the altar if you wanted and just spend time with God. And every single day after chapel, I would go down to the altar and I would lay on my face before God and I would just be in tears, sobbing. And I knew that I was a mess inside, but I had no idea where to go from there. I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know how to feel better. I didn't know, I didn't know where I was supposed to go. And over the first few months of being in college, a female staff member took notice of me and she saw how badly I was hurting. And she began to spend time with me and talk with me. And, you know, up until meeting her, I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't share my story with anybody because so many people in the body of Christ at my old church had failed me and they had disowned me, basically. But I felt like if I, now being a part of this new school, that if I told my new friends and what had happened to me, that they wouldn't like me either. And they would decide that I was worthless too. And so I kept the secret in my heart and I wouldn't tell anyone. So when this female staff member came into my life and I began sharing with her, it was the first time in many months that I had seen that someone would love me despite my past. And I began talking with her and sharing with her. And over the course of the times that we were together, I realized that I needed to forgive and let go of the pain that I was feeling. 
And over the next several years of my life, God took me down a path of forgiveness and a path of healing. And I began to see that I needed to let go of the anger and of the hurt and of the pain that I experienced from my, my friends rejecting me at that old church. I had to forgive them and let go and accept the life that Jesus was offering me, the freedom that he was offering me. If it wasn't for him, if I look back and I had never chosen to forgive, and I think about where I'd be today, it's really scary to me um, to think about where my life would be without Jesus and without letting go. If I had let that unforgiveness attach itself to me, I really believe that I would be just kind of floating through life without hope, without purpose, uh, just without a close relationship with God anymore, without feeling like I could trust people. And so it's all because of, of the love of God, why I sit here today. It's all because of His redemption, why, I'm, why I am here. And I'm so thankful to Him that He can take any situation in my life, that He took something that definitely could have destroyed me, and, and ruined me forever and set me down a course of destruction for all of my adulthood, that he rescued me, that he, he set me on a path of life and of healing and of wholeness and of forgiveness. And for that, he deserves all the glory and all the honor. I want you just to take away a few things about Danielle's story. First, don't miss the fact that for her, forgiveness took a while. And I think that's the way it is sometimes. It, it, she said years for her. It was a process because of such a catastrophic hurt, because of such a big thing she was dealing with. It, it took some time. That God knows that about forgiveness. The second thing realized is that Danielle honored what forgiveness is. Did you hear her use the words over and over again? And she had not heard my sermon yet. The words releasing and forgiving and letting go of anger. I mean, compassion and releasing what were written in to her journey, to her story on what forgiveness is defined as. And then probably most touching for me and hopefully for you is that she was not able to forgive until she tied it to her relationship with the Lord. That if she not looked to Him and had the courage to stay in the ring with Him and to drive her strength from Him and to realize she was forgiven by Him, she said she would have never been able to forgive like she did. That's how it's supposed to work, folks. And it can work for you as well. I know we got a big topic here today. I know there's some of us who are dealing with huge issues when it comes to forgiveness. So, so here's how we want to end our service today. We're going to serve you communion. Can you think of a better day to do communion than a day like today? These elements are all about forgiveness. It's about God's forgiveness of you in Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, so that you might be forgiven and brought to him. So let's wrap up our worship time by honoring him at the communion table. And I hope you draw strength from this. And then as well, if you want prayer at the end of our service today, uh, we're going to have some leaders down here to pray with you. Tom, our executive pastor, will be here. I will be here. I, I see uh, others here that, that have lanyards on. We, we'd love you guys to come down and receive prayer. Noni, if you have a few minutes to hang around here from our counseling center, we, we would love to pray for you. If you need prayer on needing strength to forgive somebody around you. We want to help you do spiritual business today. Those who are come forward right now and serve us our communion. As we do so, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. 
Father God, I thank you that Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, when he walked this earth, told 40-plus short stories, all with a very, very powerful point. And Lord, many of them, as we've established today, have to do with this idea of forgiveness. And God, if I don't miss my guess, there are some, if not many of us here today, that are still in the tunnel of chaos when it comes to forgiving someone in our life. And God, hopefully today we've been at least reminded, if not straightened out, on what forgiveness is and how it's to be sought. And that, Lord, more than anything, it comes from you and then is funneled through us to others. But, Lord, easier said than done. So we pray you would meet us at this communion table now. And for some of us, may this be a moment, a defining moment, where we realize once again, if not for the very, very first time, the forgiveness that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, from the strength that derives in this moment of worship, God, may we then be prepared to start doing business with our fellow brother or sister who needs to be forgiven as well. God, meet us at this table now. Minister to us in song as well as in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.